in private letters, he just raved about the Warner Brothers system because he appreciated the fact that they appreciated him. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. He scored Kong, Scarlet, and Everybody Who Came to Rick's. I talk with Stephen C. Smith, biographer of the legendary Max Steiner. Plus, I talk with two stops on the festival circuit about how they're adapting to doing things virtually this year. Hollywood's Larry Edmonds Bookshop and the Niles Film Museum, host to the Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival. But first, everybody needs to come to Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. It's prime film festival season, except that this year, most of them aren't happening. And that can have a big effect on the businesses that see festival traffic, like Hollywood's legendary movie-related bookstore, Larry Edmonds Bookshop. In the first of two segments about adapting for and surviving coronavirus in the classic film world, I talked to Jeffrey Mantor, owner of the 80-year-old bookshop. Larry Edmonds Bookshop was founded in 1938 and was joined shortly thereafter by a partner in the business named Milton Lubavisky. And we were a general bookstore on Cahuenga Boulevard. And then Larry Edmonds wasn't with the business for a very long time. And Milt and his new wife, Git, moved the store in the early 50s to Hollywood Boulevard. The store was still a general bookshop at that time until Git created a catalog of film-related material and sent it around to universities and film clubs and various things like that. And the material in there was very well received. And she realized that maybe we had an opportunity to you know, get stuff that a lot of other people around the country didn't have access to. And more and more of the business here started to be for film-related stuff. In the 1960s, the great writer Larry McMurtry purchased all the rest of the non-film-related first editions of Worth from the collection, and the store basically became a film-centric store at that point. And we've remained such for, well... The better part of the last 60 years, 50-some-odd years. And you joined it as a stock boy, I hear? Uh, I started work here in April of 1991. We moved to our current location six months prior to my starting. I started here in 91. I was the stock boy, and I was a film student. And 
you know, worked worked here for a long time, and then about 13 years ago, uh, an opportunity came up through one of the partners to, you know, buy into the store. And at that point, I, I uh, made a deal and became the owner of the bookstore. So, yeah, I've owned it for the last 13 years. But I've been here for 29. <laughs> so, yeah, tell us the kind of things that make it really unique. I mean, there are plenty of bookstores that have a film section, but there are things that set you apart. Well, you know, a film section might be one thing, but I a film section here would be, you know, a subgenre. A section here would be screenplays or uh, production-related books on directing or writing. A uh, section would be, you know, on film criticism or something of that nature. Our, our, our section is an entire store of material. And it's not only books, it's photos, it's movie posters, it's scripts, and a lot of the other kind of paper-related ephemera that, you know, besides the movies themselves. Right. A lot of your uh, business, I'm sure, is people from out of town, including me back in the day. Uh, so that has to have been affected by coronavirus. What What has this year been like? <laughs> Um, every, every year is a, is a challenge. I, I believe anybody that's in a position of trying to run a, a retail brick and mortar store, whatever you're doing right now, you know, in the past several years has been irrevocably changed by, you know, the possibilities on your computer at home. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I have a strong reliance on, on the tourist trade for sure and live events is our other big piece of the puzzle. I do a lot of events with the movie theaters, the American Cinematheque at the Egyptian Theater, or my friends at the Chinese Theater, and other promoters with books. And so when the live event season canceled, when the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival canceled, and the spring season disappeared, I, I really... I really haven't built enough of a presence on the internet that I was able to replace that. Right. And so it's been a real challenge trying to get mail order has obviously expanded a lot and we're trying to be more efficient at that. It's, it's, it's with, with a skeleton crew, it's really hard to answer everyone's questions when people used to just be able to kind of browse them a little easier for themselves. But I'm also in the process of, the long overdue job of building, you know, a proper website where people are going to be able to browse for more merchandise and, and be able to do it themselves instead of having to ask every individual question. The GoFundMe, you know, came as a result of me realizing that the amount of labor required just to fill the mail orders, then to wrap the packages, and then to go to the post office and, and get my own mail as well as send those out. I, it was just taking a lot. And I was still working singularly at that time. I now have one of my staff back, but there's still only two of us working right now. And um, I just realized that, that we weren't going to be able to sustain uh, the cancellation of, of the whole spring season is basically, um, it's, it's like bringing in the crop. And so yeah. when I didn't bring in the crop, I, I really didn't have 
you know, a backup plan for everybody to say, hey, what about all this, you know, wintertime stuff that, that we got to settle up on? And uh, I very reluctantly at first approached the GoFundMe and was very, very much humbled and surprised by the amount of support we received. And um, it was not only financially a, a super savior, but I think kind of spiritually and emotionally, it gave me a new sense of the value that this place uh, had to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And it was, it was, it was, was really, really rewarding. And it's kind of helped me give me the extra energy to be here literally every single day. We're starting to approach reopening. I don't know exactly where California is in that, but uh, what are your plans as people are starting to be able to go out places again? I I, I got to tell you, I'm um, I'm I'm very hesitant at the moment. And California is reopening. Los Angeles is reopening. Even some of my bookstore friends have reopened with certain rules and restrictions about how many people they let in at a time or browsing time and, you know, obviously mask and such. But I feel like I'm in a very kind of odd place being here in Hollywood, whereas a lot of people come here just kind of to walk around and kind of browse and go wherever is open as opposed to people that might be specifically coming to my store. And so I'm really taking the opportunity right now to do some repairs within the store and, you know, fixes and cleans and, and like I said, working on the website. And I'm trying to take a little bit more of a long-term strategy. I also realize a lot of my customers that do return are, are you know, we, we have a lot of older customers and older employees here. We, and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not in a hurry, you know. I, I think the verdict is still out on what I'm hearing recently or, or you know, spikes in, in the numbers right now. So so I'm, I'm, I'm just moving slowly. I'm waiting a little bit longer. I, I tentatively have a, a July reopen in mind, but I'm, I'm very much taking it day by day. So with the website and things like that, I mean, you really see your business being different uh, when, whenever all this is over, whatever, when all this is over actually means. Uh, absolutely. I, I think what I did before was wonderful and I certainly can't wait to get back to doing what we've done. My friends that work in the theater business and the live event business, you know, I, I, I don't know what they're doing. I at least have a product to still sell you right now. You know, they're having a very, very hard time. And, and as much for my success, I, I, I long for them to get back to doing what they do. But I, whatever is going to happen, it's, you know, we're, we're going to be in some transitional period here where I don't think people really know what's going on. And, and I am kind of refocusing on some of the elements that I know made this bookstore what it was for so many years, which was having, you know, a stronger inventory and an incredible, you know, knowledge base about what we have. So I'm trying to put more energy into, you know, fixing things with, within here. 
I think virtual events and long distance events are also going to be a, a big, big part of our future success here, irrespective of what we can do in person. So many of our friends and customers, for example, that couldn't come out for the TCM Film Festival are wanting to participate and now are missing even more, not being able to get their annual visit out here, uh, you know, their taste of Hollywood. So I'm realizing how many of these people want to participate and want to be involved in what we're doing. So I really, really am going to work on a plan where we're going to be able to offer them, you know, more opportunities to see what's going on. That clearly, if anything good has kind of come out of this, I, I, you know, I think the uh, opportunities for for communication, you know, long distance via event-wise and everything, people are figuring out a lot of better ways to to make that a you know a constant now. If I want to throw out anything else out there, the GoFundMe is still going on. It's it's not over. Um my website is is uh which isn't great or whatever, but you can contact me via requests and everything's still on there at LarryEmmons.com. So if anybody does wanna ask about any merch or anything, they can send me an email through that. And uh yeah yeah we're we're we and and uh, I have a page on Instagram called called the library <laughs> which okay. is which is just pictures of merchandise right now so in lieu of having the website proper uh I've been putting a little bit of time into just putting up pictures of books and different things like that so people can always browse on there and see if they see something they like Links for the webpage, the Instagram account, and the GoFundMe for the Larry Edmonds Bookshop will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Before Hollywood, but after Fort Lee, New Jersey, there was Niles, California. It was then a rustic little town convenient for shooting outdoor scenes like gunfights for Bronco Billy Anderson, or the fade out on a little tramp walking away. In recent years, after the discovery of vast silicon fortunes in the area, it celebrated its history with the Niles Film Museum and the Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival. This year of coronavirus, the festival is moving online for all of us to enjoy, as Rena Keene, who founded it with her husband David Keene, tells us. Hollywood was on par with what was going on in Niles. And Niles was really more of a, um, it, it had more of the California coast and canyon kind of a look. Um, but certainly, yes, it, by it's, and it's downtown actually still looked a bit like the Old West. It's a lot of times people don't realize, you know, because you think of Old West or uh, Wild West as like the 1880s. But, you know, if Wild, Wyatt Earp was around in 1903. So it was kind of that same way. You know, a decade later, Niles still looked kind of like, the old west then what happened with the town i mean is it always just been kind of a little farm town or what oh well and well it's kind of funny when you think about it because it's in the east bay and uh you know silicon valley and san francisco bay area i guess it's it was a farm town for quite a long time they were still uh packing peaches in the 1950s and there were still wineries and 
still lots of farmland that went all the way into just a couple of decades ago. But now we have uh, over 200,000 people. Uh, It's a 92-square-mile area, and it's the fourth largest city in the Bay Area. But you always hear about San Francisco and Oakland first, of course. Um, But we're number four. So uh, it's definitely much more of a bedroom community now, uh, suburbia. No one's going to mistake it, unfortunately, for... um, (laughs) farmland or for the wilderness but uh there are still little tuck you know little corners tucked here and there tell me when niles really started uh recognizing its heritage in that way they've always appreciated it but it got kind of lost what was happening here um there was sna days back in the 1950s and it kind of fell off the map in 1979 they had the charlie chaplin day and it started out, I guess, really big. And there was, you know, cash prize for the best Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and lookalike and their contest. But if you really think about it, he'd only passed two years earlier. And there, therefore, he was still around in people's minds. And then I guess the cash prize money went away and everything kind of started fading down a little bit. And then it kind of devolved into having uh, Elvis impersonators and hula dancers and it just really... By 2000, it was kind of done, and they, about five years later is when our theater started up. You know, we had a real theater that could show the actual films and the place where Charlie Chaplin actually watched the movies, and we pooled our resources, and we started renting the building to show a movie every single weekend. We have about 100 seats, actually, in the theater, so, uh, you know, on a good day, we can, we can do pretty well, but we, we were only doing it every week, and that's fine, and then we added some Sunday shows. We're also the home base for the Midnight Patrol, Laurel and Hardy, uh, and Little Rascals, the uh, Sons of the Desert um, tent. Tent, And so we show monthly on a second Sunday. We show uh, talkie matinees uh, when we're open, and it's not a pandemic. Um, (laughs) But in addition, we have a storefront. So we actually are the only silent film retail store, probably, uh, other than, say, the Hollywood Heritage, which is wonderful, and a few other places that sell some silent film goodies we uh, try to have as many things as we can find in the silent film era vintage or vintage like that we sell in our store and we also have quite a few cameras and projectors um, on display uh, we like to have people be able to, to touch and feel them others and i guess we're gonna have to figure out how to do all that now uh, a little differently when we do reopen the uh, bronco billy silent film festival when is that usually held well we normally have chaplain days at the end of june and Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival at the end of July. Uh, but because of everything that's happened, we've been shut down since the middle of March. Uh, and we realized we really wanted to have a presence. And we thought we'd gear everything up and do a weekend event in June, a weekend event in July, one in August, one in September, and we'll see how things all play out. But um, so normally Charlie Chaplin is, is the uh, last weekend. So this year it's going to be June 26th to June 28th. And then the Bronco Billy Silent Film Festival is uh, going to be July 24th to 26th. I do want to say that Bronco Billy Film Festival is more than Bronco Billy. And it's funny because people said, oh, you show more than Bronco Billy films. Like, well, of course. Well, but you only show Chaplin things during Chaplin days. And (laughs) they're right. So in our mindset, you know, we've always known that it's, it's a full silent film experience uh, festival, but I realize I should tell some people who aren't <laughs> quite checking us out that yes, in fact, we show lots of different things for Bronco Billy. 
So Charlie Chaplin is, we've got everything from, of course, showcasing the five films that Charlie Chaplin made while working for the SNA Film Manufacturing Company. When he came to Niles, uh, he was a bit underwhelmed. We, we always let people know that. We're not trying to make it seem <laughs> like we were bigger than we were, uh, because it was rather rural, and he was a bright lights, big city kind of guy. But when he came here, uh, uh, he ended up going to Chicago, making the movie his new job, and then he realized he had more freedom here because uh, George Spohr was um, a stickler and didn't pay overtime or anything like that. So he realized Bronco Billy was going to give him much more freedom. So he came back and made five films, including A Night Out, The Champion, In the Park, A Jitney Elopement, and The Tramp. So we actually we're going to show those films, very nice versions of those films for the weekend. And then uh, we also have several people doing uh, introductions to those films, giving a little bit of background. And in addition, we're going to have some archival footage from our archives of past Chaplin events. We have some special guests like Dan Kamen, the man who taught uh, Robert Downey Jr. how to be Charlie Chaplin for the movie Chaplin. We taught Johnny Depp how to do Chaplin moves for Benny and June. He's going to be doing several things, including interviewing. And right now on the slate to do it is we are, the plan is for him to interview David Robinson in, in England. So that will be very exciting. That's a Zoom. Um, and then he'll also be doing his presentation that he has done for us a couple times, um, and it's called Red Letter Days. And that's uh, it's all about this book that was written. Um, Fred Goodwin's back in 1916 wrote magazine articles, and someone discovered them just a couple of years ago, and they compiled them, and then Dan did annotations on that book, so you understood the context of where they were all coming from. And he's got a whole program on that. It's just really an interesting program. Things that It's kind of fun to be able to find new things about Charlie yeah. after all these years. <laughs> we are going to have Jason Allen. Jason is going to be doing uh, how, to, how to Dress Up Like the Tramp. And it was, I ended up recruiting him through one of those funny situations where I saw, I saw this guy dancing like Michael Jackson, uh, um, but dressed up like Charlie Chaplin. And it was uh, this, uh, um, this bit that was on all these Charlie Chaplin Facebook groups. I thought, man, that guy, you know, we need an S we need another impersonator. I mean, you know, our other guy is not really available. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to find out who this guy is. I'm going to get in contact with him. And I thought maybe he's young and maybe he's local and he could just show up and be there for the weekend. And, you know, we can't really afford to pay him much of anything. And then I found out he was 43, married, had three kids and lived in Ontario, Canada. <laughs> and, uh, uh but then when I contacted him, because I, I couldn't find any any plane uh, rides that were, you know, less than 2000 bucks for a round trip or whatever. And I said, well, I guess, you know, probably shouldn't even be talking beyond this because I, he goes, no, no, I can do this for cheap. I can do that. I can. I know how to get there cheaper. And I thought, my gosh, you're going to be on the outside of the airplane or something. But um, but what I found out, he goes, well, okay, I'll admit something to you. I've been stalking your website for the last two years. I really want to come to Niles. I really do. And so – and. So anyway, he's come the last few years, and he's just this wonderfully charming guy. And uh, uh, I didn't realize at the time that he not only dyed his hair black to look like Charlie, but also got a perm. So just a funny <laughs> thing here. So he's doing, he's going to be doing some uh, a couple little skits for us, uh, as well as talking about how to become the tramp, meaning put on the makeup, put on the. And he doesn't wear much makeup, and he actually can wear 
uh, uh, just a, the, you know, the vest and shirt, whatever. He doesn't have to do the full, the full coat and such. I mean, he just evokes the look of the tramp just by hardly like a little bit of eyeliner and, and the black, the black curly hair. Anyway, he, uh, he, he but he's going to do a couple of these skit things. And uh, I said, Oh, okay, great. And he goes, well, but I can't get them done yet. I go, why not? He goes, cause the hairdressers aren't the hairdressers available can't right do now. It. Yeah. So they open on Tuesday and he is going to get his hair done on Tuesday <laughs> and he's planning on filming because I wanted him to do a little skit where, you know, Cha- uh, Charlie in the time of COVID and then just, you know, whether I'm sure there'll be some kind of, you know, toilet paper reference and some other kind of, you know, low hanging fruit, as much comedy as you can find. I mean, I got friends who are literally dying from COVID and, you know, so it's not, but, you know, lots of people are coming up, trying to come up with whatever we can find, whatever the funny we can find on this. Now, you say we're going to be showing, but tell me yeah. how that's really happening. Okay. It's, thank you for saying that. It is going to be online. Uh, if you go to www.nilesfilmmuseum.org, uh, um, then you're going to be able to see these things because we're going to have them uh you know, I use the word streaming. I suppose that might mean that very specific times. And there's only a few things that are going to have to be um, checked in on a very specific. Uh, so and the Dan Kamen programs are all going to be through Zoom. So you do need to, you know, check in advance and see exactly what little number system you have to put in there to get to see that. And if you haven't done Zoom before, I'd highly suggest you practice. You go to <laughs> Zoom.us and it's practice to make sure your microphone, because nothing's more frustrating than not being able to hear people or what have you. Um, everything else, though, is going to be up for either a certain amount of time, and it'll, we'll have it very specifically noted when it goes down, uh, gets pulled, or it's just going to stay up. And um, so it's all, but it's all going to be available through our website. And uh, I mean, some of the things they're going to get that are only going to have a limited amount of time. The Chaplin films, because they are actually. Uh, courtesy of lobster uh, um, we're going to be showing the latest um, I mean the latest versions of those films but we'll have those up just for the weekend thank you Serge Bromberg and then we're also going to be showing uh, a documentary a Sydney Chaplin documentary the English language version of that that'll be up for one week but one week only um, just about everything else is going to stick around so people are not going to be having to do a complete binge and sit in front of their computer potentially if they don't have a smart TV like I don't uh, <laughs> for, you know, 15 hours. They don't have to do that. If they want to, I suppose they could. But this could actually last about a month. But there's certain ones that do have time frames, so definitely watch those things first. So you have a month of Chaplin to watch, and then it's time for the month of really <laughs> Basically, yeah. Silent Film Festival. So our big focus is going to be on Keystone. Uh, we're very excited because as you can imagine with the COVID thing, it really knocked the sales out of some folks who really worked very, very hard writing books and they've come out this year and they don't get to uh, attend any on, you know, in-person festivals or uh, do book signings or anything like that it really stinks. So we're very happy that we get to celebrate them this year. Uh, that is uh, there's a Keystone book, Keystone cops book called chase, uh, which is going to have Chris Sagan as the host. Brent Walker is going to be on board, Sam Gill, uh, Paul Gorecki, a few other people that were all involved with the book. Everybody's to be, um, com- you know, locked in that they're going to do it. So I don't want to give any, way, any more names, but if you look at the, uh, <laughs> the people who were involved with the book, it's any of them who wants to be part of a panel. Um, that will be through Zoom. And uh, also the Rediscovering Roscoe, the films of 
Saudi Arbuckle, uh, that of course Steve Massa put together. He's going to have a host, uh, a panel of people. So we're going to celebrate both of those Keystone books. And with that, we're going to be also having some other things. And if if it plays out right, and I don't want to make 100% promises, and I don't want to put pressure on anybody like you know my husband or anything, but um, we have access to a film that hasn't been seen in a, a century, I believe. Um, and that is because a family in Stockton uh, were kind enough to give as a gift six nitrate films that were found under their basement. Uh, their father slash husband uh, said that there was a treasure under the house. And when they went under there, they found these nitrates. Unfortunately, one of them is completely unusable, but it's not, it is not London After Midnight. I just want to say that. It's not <laughs> London After Midnight. It's a, it's a Harry Depp comedy. So I guess if something had to get sacrificed, yeah. Poor Harry, but uh, what he did, uh, what that nitrate film did, was preserve the other five. Okay. And one of, the, and we have, we're going to announce more of those. But one of them is a split reel that has an actuality on it called Useful Sheep, and the other film on that reel is called Mabel's Adventures from 1912. It's a Mabel Norman film that, from what I can see, has been a lost film. So we're hopefully going to premiere a digitized version of that, just so people can see uh, what it looks like. Um, so, of course, it's not the same as being on the big screen or anything, but hey, you know, it'll be pretty exciting uh, to see something that, even if it's just a few minutes long. Um, so we're doing that. We're having um, just other programs involving Keystone. Uh, we're going to have some special guests. Joe Renato is going to have a, a photo player program. Um, he, had, he had done it, streamed it live a couple months ago, but He's recorded it, and we're going to be posting that. Uh, we're going to be connecting with Steve Massa and Ben Modell for their Sunday afternoon silent film comedy show. That he's going to have a, they're going to have a focus on on the Keystone Company. Um, so definitely be on the lookout for that. Uh, there's several other things. It's all going to be posted uh, of exactly what we're going to show um, on our website very very soon. Uh, and then the programs in August and September are going to be focusing on New York and New Jersey film studios. So everything from Sanhauser to Edison to Champion to Solax, Vitagraph, um, we'll have a special focus on John Bunny. Um, we're going to be uh, going to be able to show some Vitagraph shorts that haven't really been seen in America uh, for a long time, um, maybe a century. Uh, and then hopefully, you know, if, we, if we're still in doing our thing, comes October, we got Halloween coming up, so there'll be fun things there. <laughs> Diana Carey, so, you know, celebrates celebrated her birthday in October, so. We just got all kinds of things on the on the slate. So I think the most important thing people could do is either sign up to be part of our e-newsreel, which is our our email uh, newsletter, and they could send an email to go SNA, E-S-S-A-N-A-Y, go SNA at yahoo.com. Um, and they can also keep a lookout on our website, which is nilesfilmmuseum.org. Links for the Niles Film Museum and this year's virtual events will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. This has been a hard year for film buffs. Yes, you can watch vintage movies all day and all night via streaming, but being able to talk to somebody about them is another thing. 
When Nitrateville started 13 years ago, nobody anticipated a year quite like this. But we did create it to offer the ability to chat with other people all around the world, who you would probably never meet in person, but who nevertheless shared your love and interest in vintage movies. By the same token, this podcast was started as a way for everyone to be able to hear from people who write books, restore movies, program festivals, and so on. Who, again, you might not meet in real life, but could get to know better all the same online. We hope that listening to this podcast and participating in discussions at Nitrateville has served to keep us all closer with people who love what we love. If you're not a member of Nitrateville, consider signing up and joining the conversation. And help other people discover this podcast by sharing it on social media. We're Nitrateville on both Twitter and Facebook. And by leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, which helps raise our profile there and enables new folks to discover us. Thanks. Well, speak up. What do you want to say? I've come to claim the 20 pounds reward for Frank and Philip. My darling, you are crying. These are only tears of gratitude. Don't talk like that. You see, no one ever called me darling. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rhino, and I'm willing to shoot you. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly... I like that. From the thrilling pages of life rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers. If that hasn't convinced you that Max Steiner wrote more all-time great scores for more all-time great movies than anybody, I don't know what would. And I didn't even get to Treasure of the Sierra Madre or Top Hat or White Heat or A Summer Place. Max Steiner invented much of the language of movie scoring, and the boundless energy in his scores is part of why Warner Brothers movies sweep audiences away today, just as they did in the 1930s and 40s. Stephen C. Smith, an Emmy-nominated TV producer and author of a biography of Bernard Herrmann, now turns his attention to the man who started it all with his scores in the early 30s. In Music by Max Steiner, 
The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer, from Oxford University Press. I spoke to Stephen C. Smith at his home in California. You wrote a biography of Bernard Herrmann quite a while ago. <laughs> That's then, true. And then uh, this one comes out in, I guess, a series devoted to music that Gary Giddens is the editor of. So tell me about that first and how you got involved with the project. Yes. Well, I was very fortunate in many ways early in my life when I was 19 and a student at USC and very interested in film and music and journalism. I realized that I could sort of synthesize those interests in a book on my favorite film composer, Bernard Herrmann. And uh, I was very fortunate in that there was no biography of him yet and that many of his colleagues were still alive and rather accessible. So I uh, embarked on that uh, and uh, about seven and a half years later, after learning how to write a book and spending a lot of time in England with uh, Benny's last wife, and I got to know his first and second wives well also, I had a book and it really sort of got me started on a, on a career. It, it was used as the uh, reference source for a documentary that was Oscar nominated on Herman, and it got me launched in a career that has sort of uh, gone between print journalism, but mostly television uh, journalism. And I ended up making a lot of the A&E biography shows that your listeners may have seen. I produced a series on classic films for AMC called Backstory. So for about 20 years of my life, I was primarily working in uh, either network documentary television or producing behind the scenes materials for movies, both current and classic. And so it was a nice surprise when uh, one of the people that I had gotten to know through those projects, the writer Gary Giddens, told me that he was overseeing a, a series of books, uh, cultural biographies on uh, composers as well as other uh, other people in the arts, filmmakers, uh, people who basically should have had a biography written about right. them by now, but didn't. <laughs> and uh, I was certainly interested. And when he mentioned the name Max Steiner, I said, stop, that's, that's the one I would love to do that because I've always loved Max's music. And I would have to say that if I grew up with Herman as my favorite composer, uh, Max was a very close second. And now they're a tie after spending five years of my <laughs> life, five years following uh, his life uh, with, uh, and uh, going to Vienna and London and wonderful archives in New York for his Broadway Years. So uh, it was a, it was a terrific project, and I'm very grateful that Gary and Oxford asked me to do it. Well, and there's a quote from Giddens in the uh, foreword that says, F "Few composers are more widely heard and less recognized by the general public." Well, I'm not sure that the general public could name any composers most of the time, anyway. But uh, why is why is that the case with Steiner in particular? Well, it is fascinating that the man who, and I'm going to say something controversial, who basically uh, created the modern film score as we know it, the sound film movie score as we know it, it's amazing that he is rather forgotten today because he really is the one who, much as Orson Welles took a lot of techniques that were used at different times and and combine them all into an extraordinary first film, uh, and much as D.W. Griffith used the close-up that was already in existence in a, in, and other techniques in a, a way that was uniquely his, Max Steiner took all the pieces of, of approaches to film music when he began working in Hollywood in the year 1930, and by 1932 created the template for the score that is still in use today. And I think it's because uh, his music 
is he, well for one thing he was a studio employee for many years he wasn't a an iconoclast like bernard herman who stood outside the system and was constantly battling with filmmakers and constantly losing jobs because of that max like a michael curtis loved working in a place like say warner brothers where he spent much of his career so i think that worked against him that he was seen as a company man and and the fact that he uh, worked on up to you know, roughly 300 movies, and that includes films on which he was a musical director, basically overseeing things, doing a little bit of music here and there. But, but he certainly wrote complete scores for probably somewhere between, uh, certainly in the neighborhood of 200 movies. So I think the, the sheer volume of his work perhaps worked against him a little bit. Um, and I also think it's the fact that kind of like a William Wyler, it's it's he's he's such a, a tremendous craftsman and and not a kind of outlier like an Orson Welles or, or musically a Bernard Herrmann that made people forget about him. And, and I also think that because Max is, is often called things like the father of film music and the dean of film composers, and, and those are very well-intentioned phrases, and, and, uh, but I think they make him sound a little like George Washington, a name <laughs> you need to know, but probably not a whole lot of fun to spend time with, but, but somebody you should just be able to say the name of. And the opposite is true. And uh, I have to say, Max was wonderful company for the last five years because he was a funny guy. He was warm. He was generous. Uh, but he was conflicted. Uh, or rather, I wouldn't say he was conflicted. He was someone who could be very intense about his craft and fought very hard for music and film, really as hard as Bernard Herrmann did in his own way. And, uh, and he was flawed in, in ways that make him more human. Uh, he had a gambling addiction. He he made millions, but he somehow managed to spend more than he made on alimonies, on handouts to friends who weren't as successful as he was. So it's a very complicated, messy life. And like a lot of artists, the messy life is in stark contrast to the incredible organization that he brought to writing music for film. And uh, when he I think the reason that he did score so many films was because he could escape so completely into the creative side of his brain where it, where he loved to live. And it was amazingly uh, easy for him to find not only themes, but really memorable themes, great melodies. Uh, Herman was not a melodist. We don't think of that hit song by Bernard Herman, right. but, but Max, oh, was there wasn't a single of the <laughs> psycho shower scene. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it, let's say that it's, it's, I, I've heard it on an M&M's commercial, and uh, <laughs> it's been heard on The Simpsons, so it's certainly popular. But yeah, no, Steiner was much more of a, of a melodist, so he's an interesting figure. And and so that's one reason I wanted to write the book was not only to get his story straight, because I didn't think there was one really accurate account of his life, and, and I learned uh, how, how true that was as I went along, but I wanted to show people that um, – he was a really interesting man, and he was one of the really, I think, the, the key seminal figures in Hollywood film of the golden age in the way that he took it. He, he, he entered an industry that was highly suspicious about having underscoring in a film that was like a comedy or drama and putting music under people speaking. And he showed in a relatively short period of time how much music could improve a movie, not only just by being there, but by writing it in the sophisticated way he did, by writing different themes for characters, but then developing those themes subtly to tell us how those characters were changing 
and his use of orchestral color, the instruments that he chose, it was was tremendously influential. And yes, his gift as a, a melodist was a was was quite magnificent. So not only was he the revolutionary. The, the arguably first to really bring it all together in the sound era, but he was also one of the best and remains so. Well, let's uh, let's talk about what movie music was like. You know, it's interesting. I just interviewed uh, Janine Basinger about her book on movie musicals, and she says, you know, the great thing is we can see the moments as they happened in the invention of an art form, and this is clearly the flip side of that. We we can look at the movies where they're puzzling out how much music is the right amount of music and how to use it well. Um, so in the early days of sound you either had an opening theme and then nothing till the end. Like Frankenstein would be an example of a movie Perfect like example. that. Yes, and Dracula. And Dracula, right, which are notable for their lack of scoring through most of them, um, which has an interesting effect. In some ways, they're creepier because they feel less polished. Uh, but then you also had the kind of thing where just they – turn on the music at the beginning of the movie and it kind of runs throughout. There are early Laurel and Hardy films like yes. that where you have that kind of music throughout. There are certainly musicals where music is happening, something audible is happening all the way through the movie. I think that's one of the things you notice in something like the first Broadway melody is mm-hmm. somebody is always making noise with something. <laughs> um and figuring out how to turn that into something that would enhance what's going on in the movie was a was a hard project. Yes, it was. And uh, it's interesting that Max was invited to come to Hollywood in at the very end of 1929, just when you know talkies had become codified as what movies were going to be in Hollywood from now on. And I'll just say briefly, up to that time, he had spent the first 20 years of his life in Vienna uh, to a very successful family of, of theatrical entrepreneurs, but then bankruptcy sort of wrecked the family and Max left on his own to start all over in London, worked his way up to being a successful conductor there. Then World War I broke out, and suddenly he's an enemy alien, so he has to hop on a ship to a country that isn't in the war, and fortunately that was America. Uh, and then in New York, he he started all over again from the bottom and worked his way up to being one of the top musical directors on Broadway, that is the conductor and sometimes the orchestrator of the music, and worked with Gershwin and Kern and Victor Herbert and Oscar Hammerstein. But he's always on the periphery, and he's not writing a lot of original music during this time. Time, but his his work in making us the orchestra sound really big and full on Broadway so impressed William LeBaron, the head of RKO production at the time, that LeBaron asked Max to come to Hollywood, and Max did at the rather advanced age of forty one, uh, and uh, and when he came out here. The thought was that there was going to be more music in movies because so many musicals were being cranked out. And I, I don't think there was any intention on RKO's part to really have Max write a lot of dramatic underscoring because RKO had just had a big success with Rio Rita and uh, they were developing another movie with the same team called Dixiana. And uh, unfortunately, the bottom fell out on those early movie musicals rather quickly in 1930 because Hollywood had simply cranked out too many of them in a couple of years. And Max suddenly uh, was faced with the prospect of having to 
possibly go back to New York and just see Hollywood as a bust. And many people at RKO in 1930, just as the as the Wall Street crash has happened and the depression is starting to set in, RKO retrenches from saying, hey, come out here and help us run this great music department. We're making musicals. Suddenly they're saying, well, we're really we don't think we need music much anymore, but uh, hey, don't leave yet. And uh, so he, he was beginning to make plans to go back to New York and do what he'd been doing when he got the surprising offer of being uh, going from being a lowly orchestrator, sometime composer at RKO to being the musical director of the entire studio. And uh, it was under the proviso that uh, not only he worked for very little money, but that uh, there wouldn't be very much music needed in movies. And as you've said, it was very typical at the time, certainly RKO films, but really for most of the studios studios in 1930, 31 to have a main title, then no music if it isn't some kind of musical until the end or unless a record is playing or there's a dance band in a club scene. In other words, you had to see the source of the music. And Max, who uh, had been trained in, the, in, in, in everything from grand opera to musical theater, uh, knew how much music could bring to film and was eager to show that, to, to show that music could help dramas and comedies. And he was always stymied by the inevitable reply from the producer or studio head that said, but Max, where would the music be coming from? Won't the audience wonder why we're hearing music? So from 1930 to 31, every once in a while, he'll he'll write a few cues for a film, but really doesn't get to do a full score. And uh, fortunately, at the very end of 31, RKO, which seemed to go through a new production chief about every year, uh, brought in this young 20-something dynamo named David O. Selznick. And Selznick and Steiner were really a, a great meeting of the minds because Selznick loved music and silent films, and he, he wanted to bring music back into movies and use it more in the talkies. And I'm sure I, there, there's no transcript of their conversation, but I'm sure Max said something like, thank God, that's what I've been trying to tell these people. <laughs> well, you know, I think of something like Gone of the Wind, which really does kind of harken back to the silent days in that it wants that big sweeping score to – pick you up and take you away and it has titles that roll on screen and it has montages i mean it really is in many ways a throwback to the silent era despite being technicolor um and steiner is perfect for that it seems he is, and you'll see that in a lot of Selznick films. Uh, the, the first movies that he and uh, Max made together at RKO in 1932 will sometimes have title cards like a silent film. But in watching them, what's really interesting is that movies of the 30, of 1930 and 1931, they're often based on stage plays. They have a lot of dialogue, and as you've mentioned, when, when people aren't talking, there's this kind of deadly – emptiness of sound where you're often often hearing the crackle and hiss of the film emulsion and Selznick went started making films like The Most Dangerous Game and Bird of Paradise that had lengthy silent sequences because he he saw Max as a partner, he already saw film music as a partner where like a good silent film and like movies now, you have people talking, but then you can have an entire sequence with no dialogue and music and imagery is carrying it. So uh, I think they, they've transformed film in many ways in that critical year of 1932. And it's so appropriate that Justice Selznick is leaving RKO after a, a short year to have, have a much better job at MGM. Um, he leaves with uh, one of his last Productions King King Kong about to go into the into scoring, and in December of 1932, Max begins writing the music to King Kong, which is released the following March. And you know, 
that's a movie that it, we could talk about that certainly continues to influence a lot of composers and people like Jerry Goldsmith have said, and this is a, a paraphrase, but it's close to what Goldsmith said, I'm doing what I'm doing because of it. Yeah. Well, you know, I was talking to my sons about reading this book at the same time that we were watching um, The Lord of the Rings again. And mm-hmm. so I was able to point for them to how Howard Shore uses a very Steinerish approach to giving everybody a theme. And if they're thinking, you know, if they're thinking about being back in the Shire, you get a little bit of the Shire theme come in, even if they're in the middle of Mordor and things like that. And that's really what he invented on King Kong. So let's, I mean, let's go through that and kind of talk about his approach here. I mean, I've read many times, you know, he uses Wagnerian leitmotifs <laughs> um, as if that's sort of a detergent. Now with extra, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's let's walk through it and, and explain exactly how he put that score together. Sure. And and uh, thank you. It, it's, it's wonderful to talk about King Kong because, of course, it's a film that people know. And a lot of people have at least some familiarity or sense that it has important music to it. But I think there's, there's much that isn't known. And I, I found a lot of great information that I, I think has not been published before that is in my book. Um, the, the score to King Kong is this sort of synthesis of of yes Wagnerian scope this the bigness of it and the idea of attaching themes not only to characters but to settings to emotions there's a great danger theme that we talk about in King Kong and and Max uses it I think the most critical thing that music does in King Kong is to to humanize or make us feel for Kong and the music makes us uh, trepidatious of whatever he is at the beginning, as his name is mentioned, uh, you know, when they're on the ship, as they approach in the fog, uh, we hear his theme. Then when we first see Kong, uh, the, the three note theme, and it's a very simple three note theme that Max created for Kong, we hear it with great force and power. And uh, the intention was very much to not make people think that this was a stop motion figure, which RKO was nervous about, but to make it feel like this was a giant, terrifying monster. And Steiner's music does so much to make us feel that in Kong's entrance. He even gives us Kong's footsteps (laughs) as he approaches. But then as the film goes along, the, the Kong theme is transformed. The notes stay very much the same, but the the harm the the harmony of it and and the 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 the, the way it's written makes Kong seem a much more vulnerable character. In the famous scene where he's holding Anne and examining her, we hear his his theme in a more thoughtful, reflective way. And and that that theme continues to evolve right to the last sequences of the film in which, spoiler alert, he's killed at the top of the Empire State Building or falls from the Empire State Building. And by then, Max's Kong theme is really this kind of grand elegy for a a tragic fallen hero, if you will, or a tragic character and makes us feel great sympathy and pity for Kong. It's certainly in the film, but I don't think it would work nearly as well if not for the music. And so that's the Wagnerian part of the score. But then Max also brings to it some other things that were really quite revolutionary. One is a tremendous use of dissonance, dissonance, uh, you know, clashing 
notes that kind of hurt our ears but sound right in context. Uh, it was something associated with com concert composers like Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring. <laughs> And it was something that you don't hear in Hollywood films and, and well into the 40s and 50s, uh, uh, producers and directors didn't like uh, music that had too much dissonance in it. But the Kong score is filled with dissonance, particularly when any human is being eaten, <laughs> when, any, uh, <laughs> when anyone is being attacked by a, a dinosaur or by Kong, you'll hear this clashing of, of two notes that are right next to each other on the keys. And uh, that's kind of a leitmotif in itself. So there's a lot of dissonance. And then there's also Max's, I think his own truest voice was the one that, that began in Vienna. Uh, he knew Johann Strauss Jr., the waltz king who wrote the Blue Danube and as a child. And, uh, and Max had a wonderful way with writing uh, beautiful romantic melodies. And in the theme that he gives Anne and Darrow, the Fay Ray character, we first hear it as very much a Viennese waltz in the sequence where uh, Fay Ray and Bruce Cabot's characters admit that they're in love. And there's this beautiful theme for her. Uh, Max called it Stolen Love. I think he was hopeful that, that it might uh, have some, some success as sheet music. But uh, the, the name Stolen Love is also a sign of how much Max loved puns because it's stolen in the sense that it's they're kind of hiding out and having a stolen encounter. But of course, moments later, she is literally stolen by the residents of Skull Island and put on, on a canoe. Um, but you hear this lovely theme for her. And what I think a lot of Kong viewers won't realize unless they pay attention to it is that that, that pretty melody, that waltz theme, becomes this hysterical theme of terror for Anne, and that really almost every time we see her in the film, you hear that, that, that theme transformed as a kind of heartbeat racing cry, matching her scream. that was something he did so ingeniously in the score and uh if you notice it that's great and if you don't notice it it still works so just as as max takes us from kong being a figure of horror to a figure of pity he uses Anne's music to take her from being this young woman in love to being a woman who's understandably frightened about her survival and makes us feel her terror and puts us, to borrow a phrase from another composer, Bernard Herrmann, he puts us inside the characters and makes us feel what they're feeling. Well, and what you just said points to another thing that, that Steiner says, music should be felt rather than heard. And I think, you know, one of the things that he kind of develops is... You may have big themes, but the underscoring, they're careful not to let individual instruments stand out too much. I mean, if it suddenly goes to violin, then that's sort of obvious. But if yes. there's just this kind of, I mean, I almost want to call it a wall of sound that is, you know, pushing you along in the story, but you're not thinking, wow, trumpets you know, <laughs> or anything like that. 
Exactly. That gives me a perfect opportunity to point out that Max was so sensitive about making sure that his music wasn't fighting the voice. I think he gets a bad rap sometimes for being too big in movies, in term, but he was he was very careful to make sure or do whatever he could to, to ensure that the music wasn't fighting either uh, the, the most important sound effects or especially an actor's voice. And looking at his scores, and fortunately his scores, his, the, the hand scores that he wrote in pencil survive, he would write down the key of an actor's voice. That is, if Betty Davis's voice was on the piano, it would be between the notes of E and F. So on the score of Jezebel, he points out to his orchestrator, Hugo Friedhofer, uh, that she says, Emma, and he writes it like with a Southern accent, she says, Emma, between the notes E and F. And the purpose is to write instruments, to write in an instrumental range that is above or below her voice, because he felt that if he was writing in exactly the same pitch as her voice, they would fight each other. I noticed since several composers in films, particularly early on when they were all figuring it out, who, who were not that sensitive and the music is fighting us hearing their speech. But Max, with his training on Broadway, where he was conducting uh, for people like Fred Astaire and others, where, where microphones were generally you know, not in use in a theater, he had to make sure the music was not overpowering the voice. He was very careful about that. And that's true in King Kong as well. Well, there's a similar thing, too, in terms of tempo, which is that he talks a lot about timing music to match how somebody's moving um, in a human bondage because Leslie Howard's character has a club foot. He writes music that sort of matches the irregular tempo of his gait while not Mickey mousing. Cause that's the danger in anything like that, that it quickly, you know, was recognized in, in sound that if you hear someone go up steps and it's dun, 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 yes. dun, you know, then <laughs> yeah. we, we take that as comical. I think it also kind of tells us, I feel like it tells us that the character doesn't have free will. If the music is carrying him to his destination, he's not making the choice. So you have to kind of score in anticipation, but not ahead of the character. So yeah. he, you know, he does that. And the other one that's really fascinating is in Angels with Dirty Faces. He changes the tempo to match who's in the shot, because yeah. in particularly in the the final execution scene. Again, I'm assuming this is not a spoiler for this audience. <laughs> no, um, he. You know, there people are walking at different paces. Cagney obviously is more reluctant than other people in the scene to get to where he's going, so he has to vary the tempo to match who's, uh, you know, in the shot at that moment. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up the Mickey Mousing because that was a an appellation that was applied to him very early on. People said, "Oh, Mac, Max Steiner, he's always doing that Mickey Mousing," which is, as you've said, matching the music closely. And it, there's no question that at times he does. And and part of the fun of of watching the early movies is seeing him figure out what works and what doesn't. Uh, in King Kong, there's the famous moment where Noble Johnson's uh, native chief comes walking towards Carl's, Carl Denham and the others, and Max decides to match his feet. Max felt that for 
really a few for moments of key power that in, in isolated situations, it was okay to be very close to the footsteps because Wagner had done that for the title character of the Flying Dutchman in the opera. And he saw it not as a cartoon-like thing, but as something that came out of musical drama of centuries past. And But most of the time, as you've said, he, he's in the neighborhood of the walking or the movement, but he doesn't exactly match it because he doesn't want it to be comic. And he was aware in the 30s that if you did it too closely, it could be really silly and comic. And then as you watch his career evolve, and particularly in the 40s and after after World War II and during, he does less and less of it and doesn't write quite as specifically because uh, attitudes were changing towards music as they were towards film and, and everything. Now, that said, if you look at a Star Wars or any Marvel film, uh, composers continue to match action. That when a, when a weapon is thrown or someone hit, throws a punch or something happens, the, the composer is probably going to hit that moment. And uh, so what Steiner was doing is still done today. Uh, you just don't want to get caught doing it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he's at RKO. RKO is kind of, I mean, it was a penny-pinching studio. Um, David O. Selznick was kind of his outlet from that. And at the same time, you had Selznick wanting him to work in folk songs that people already knew or would decide that, oh, we don't need music for this whole part after Steiner had written a whole, you know, a huge scene. and That's... There were two definite periods between Selznick and Steiner. The year of 1932, when they worked at RKO, it was a dream. They seemed to agree on everything. And Selznick left as Max was writing King Kong. And who replaced Selznick but the maker of King Kong, Marion C. Cooper, as the head of the studio for a while. So Max really was uh, sort of a little king there and, and could do what he wanted. And years later, just a few years later, David O. Selznick, of course, started his own independent production company, and he wanted Max to be the, the head of the music department. And Max thought that this was what he was going to probably do for the rest of his career, because he had loved working with Selznick. But Selznick had started to change, and it was it was really in that interim time between RKO and having his own studio that Selznick decided that he wanted to hear more existing pieces of music by Tchaikovsky and Wagner, literally used in the scores, and that uh, and and also he started to use Benzedrine and became you know sort of micromanaging and and erratic. And surprisingly, he and Steiner only worked together for one year. Max quit because it was just too intolerable the way Selznick kept changing his mind or he'd be really insulting. And uh, so so Max left. But Max knew that a book called Gone with the Wind that was already becoming a million seller had just been purchased by Selznick. So he very much wanted to return and work for for Selznick on that one film. And that is what happened. And Gone with the Wind was one of the rockiest producer-composer sessions (laughs) in the history of movies. (laughs) And it's far too detailed to get into. But uh, but yeah, Max not only had too little time to write the score, but Selznick was not deliberately gaslighting him but certainly driving him insane by by constantly contradicting his own instructions by by putting in music from other people and then max having to fight and say no you know please use the music written for the film because it's more specific so they were really out of sync and and at one point selznick said in a memo uh, i cannot see how at this point we can even have a bad score you know much less any score i'm paraphrasing slightly but i remember him saying we can't even have a bad score there isn't enough time well max proved him wrong and Max 
Max got very little sleep for the the three months that he was working on it. I mean, he 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 adopted the Selznick approach and got the daily benzedrine shots, so he could just keep going night and day. He and worked with his his very very large team of of people helping him just to just to hit the deadline of that that famous premiere. But uh, after that, he only worked with Selznick once again. All right, so he went to Warner Brothers, which already had a quite famous and great composer in Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Uh, but with, between the two of them, you really have kind of the high point of that Warner Brothers sound, which you say was partly the way the orchestra was put together for for movies. What was that exactly? Yes, uh, Max Steiner was certainly the the right per- he, he he was always the right person in the right place at the right time, and he left Selznick knowing that he had an offer waiting at Warner Brothers to be a staff composer there for a lot more money. So, <laughs> as sad as he was to have a big falling out with David O. Selznick uh, for that one year he was his musical director, he was thrilled to go to a big company like Warner Brothers because Max was a workhorse. This ran in his family. He was obsessed with work. Uh, he would rather stay up uh, for days writing music than not. And as much as he complained about it, he chose to do it year after year. But in private letters, he just raved about the Warner Brothers system because he appreciated the fact that they appreciated him. Jack Warner loved music and movies. Hal Wallace knew how important a good score was. And after Max's first score for Warner Brothers, uh, The Charge of the Light Brigade, uh, Wallace realized he had another really great quality composer he could rely on. And Korngold was not a, a staff Warner Brothers guy. He wasn't someone who was just there ready to score one movie after another. Uh, Korngold still saw himself as a, a concert composer who also worked in film. And if World War II had not happened, if, if Hitler hadn't moved into Austria, Korngold probably would have gone back to Europe much, much sooner. Um, so Wallace knew he could only rely on Korngold for uh, the you know sort of annual or twice a year big, big film, whereas Max in one remarkable year scored a dozen movies and loved doing it. And uh, in his memoirs, Hal Wallace said the only time that he saw Max get upset was when they tried to put more people on a project to help him because <laughs> he wanted <laughs> to do it all. And Wallace said in the same book, uh, I think that if he could have, Max would have worked on every project we had. So again, there's that similarity to Michael Curtiz, a Warner Brothers staff director and, and Max's favorite director too. Uh, somebody who loved to work, who loved the collaboration. Um, unlike Curtiz, he was not a, a, a harsh taskmaster. Uh, Max really had a rather lovable personality. He loved to make jokes. He was really loved by the members of his orchestra because he was so fair and and was not berating of them like say a Bernard Herrmann could be at times. Um, Max could get very intense though and he cared a lot about the music so he could be in a sort of an emotional teary state a lot of the time while he was working but that was that was just his method of operation so yeah he really loved the Warner system and he was a staff composer there from 1937 until 1954 and uh, he was 65 at the time that they decided not to renew his contract in the 50s and then of course that was the era of television it was movies temporarily 
kind of uh, retrenching and trying to figure out what to do as they were getting the new media of widescreen and stereo and all of that. And uh, but but he he was very much a he was very loyal to the studio and he appreciated that they largely let him do what he wanted to do. Well, I mean specifically to the question of the orchestration, um, what was or of the makeup of the orchestra. I, I don't honestly remember precisely what you said, but there was something interesting that struck me as being true because you know you can recognize as Warner Brothers score anytime you hear the first couple of notes. Yeah. It seems very forward in certain things that has a kind of brassy bigness to it. So what was that about? Yes. The Warner Brothers sound was a unique one. And there's a great memo from uh, of David O. Selznick. I think it's in Rudy Belmer's invaluable book of Selznick memoirs, where Selznick is saying, why do those Warner Brothers scores sound so different from ours? What are they doing? And it was a combination, which I, of course, discuss in the book, of, of the acoustics of the space that they were in, the fact that they had superb sound engineers and recordists, and, uh, and, and the fact that Jack Warner really liked music on the soundtrack. And so although although you will frequently find in Steiner's uh, handwritten scores the message, you know, quietly, be careful here, low voice speaking, um, music is prominent in, in the Warner Brothers films of the 30s and 40s, no matter who the composer is, because that was really the house style and the house sound. And there are certainly many quiet moments, but also there were moments when the music is out there. And I think Casablanca, of course, is a perfect example of that, where there are, are cues that we, we we think of that are extremely powerful and, and prominent. But then you think of the the delicate underscoring of the, the farewell at the airport, uh, in which Max writes just these heartbreaking, almost Puccini-esque variations on the Herman Hupfeld song, As Time Goes By. And that that's really delicate beautiful writing that he could do. So the Warner sound was was the combination of a, a, a the the big orchestra, the sound, the players, the acoustics and um, and the final mix of course. Yeah, so then you know the 40s go by, he's the king of that sort of big lush scoring thinking of things. I mean Casablanca certainly now Voyager, things like that. We get to the end of the war and suddenly there's this kind of new mood that's, you know, film noir and at least noir adjacent things like <laughs> like Mildred Pierce say. And he actually takes to that surprisingly well. You th you don't think of him, you know, it seems unlikely that the guy from Vienna is going to be writing, you know, sort of dark urban scores, but actually he finds a sort of hybrid of his lushness and a sort of noir menace that works very well and and he does i mean so many of the films you know, the big sleep white heat key largo um as i say mildred pierce which is sort of noir soap opera you know he he really adapted to it surprisingly well Yes, he did. And to that list, I would add a noir western, Pursued. Pursued, a, yeah. That has a wonderful dark score. And there's a great cue where Robert Mitchum is on a horse and we see in the distance another horseman following him uh, above uh, on a higher plane. And Max has this wonderfully simple cue that is literally uh, – the main theme is two notes going – 
bum, 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 bum on a low piano. And you hear it and you think, oh, my God, that's the Jaws theme inverted. And I'm not in any way suggesting that John Williams took that from Steiner. He didn't. It's just that they're using Right, because he only took things from Korngold. Oh, no. John Williams is wonderful. (laughs) But everybody was influenced by everybody. But, 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 yeah, Steiner writes and pursued this incredibly simple cue of this piano and low cello playing these notes. And it's it's like Bernard Herrmann. So he knew when to be small and intimate. And, and yes, he scaled back his sound after the war. And I think it's interesting that although he's so often called a Wagnerian composer because he used different leitmotifs, he, he said, I really don't like Wagner's music that much. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it's true that harmonically, he's, he's, he's closer to composers like Debussy and Ravel and, and Richard Strauss. And Debussy and Ravel, some of your listeners will know, would write French Impressionism. And, you know, Herman sort of is in a similar style. And you listen to a score like A Stolen Life, the Betty Davis film, and it's very Debussy-like. It's very mysterious and beautiful and haunting and music of the sea. Steiner really responded to to water. You think of the A Boat in the Fog, the great cue in King Kong as they approach the island. Uh, but he was very sensitive to, to, to oceans, maybe because he traveled so much around the world in the early part of his life. But uh, but yes, his later scores are wonderful. And I, I you know, it's interesting. I, I I would say his peak time was actually 1948 when he scored Johnny Belinda, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, um, and Adventures of Don Juan, which is sort of like his Corn Gold score, but it's really a Max Steiner swashbuckler score and just wonderful. And his invention was as great as ever, even as he you know, reached his 60th year that year. And uh, he went on to write some very strong scores for Warner's, like, as you mentioned, White Heat, The Fountainhead, uh, Beyond the, uh, the Forest. The Glass Menagerie has a gorgeous score that even Tennessee Williams said was beautiful. He said Max Steiner has perfectly captured the the mood of the play. He uh, that uh, Williams wrote that in a letter to Jack Warner, uh, but but unfortunately that was when the studios were having to sell off uh, their theater chains and television was coming in and movies were getting smaller. And after really sort of being this this sort of emperor of film scoring, Max found himself in the early 50s and it rather at times humiliating and embarrassing situation where he would get memos from the the head office telling him to cut out some of those instruments and not hire that freelancer, but just use whoever they had on staff at the moment. And it was all about cutting back. And happily, there was a third act for him. Uh, He did go back to Warner Brothers in in the mid-50s all the way up to 1965, writing individual scores for them. And in one of the the great third act twists in in a composer's life, a man who had spent his entire life trying to write that big hit song, the song that would earn him a fortune, and Max was always in money trouble because he was so careless with it and tried. He wanted to be another Gershwin and wrote song after song and they never really quite clicked with the public uh, with with the exception of the beautiful now voyager theme but he didn't have that massive hit until he was asked to score a summer place uh which was you know a a a good budgeted, you know, a, a well-budgeted film at Warner Brothers, but the material was considered, as they would have said in those days, trashy. It's kind of a Peyton Place type movie of, you know, horny kids in love and their parents <laughs> also having their own romantic troubles. And Max, at age 71, writes this sort of pastiche of of rock pop music for the theme for Molly and Johnny. And he, he apparently did not see that as uh, you know, having great 
commercial potential. But when Percy Faith released a recording of it uh, and the movie came out and, and tons of people saw the movie and heard the theme in the movie and then a Percy Faith's record was out, that record became the number one seller in America and stayed at number one for nine weeks. It won the Grammy for Record of the Year over songs by Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Elvis, and Ray Charles. <laughs> and uh, it made Max uh, so wealthy that even with all of his money problems, he was very comfortable. So how funny that a 71-year-old composer from Vienna wrote what Billboard said was the most successful rock instrumental of the early rock era. <laughs> well, and one that just sums up its period so perfectly. I was mentioning it to one of my sons, and I said, you've never heard of this movie, but I guarantee you, you've heard this song. And I played it, and he said, yeah, I think it's right at the beginning of Green Book. It's like, of course it is, because <laughs> it's instant idea of what time and place in American history we're in. It is, and and one of the things that Max certainly you know was grateful for was that it it ended up being used in so many other films. He uses it himself in a later movie at a, at a makeout party, a sort of an in, in in joke, if you will. But also knowing he knowing he'd get more royalties. It's in <laughs> it's in Tim Burton's Batman. It's in The Simpsons. It's in Mad Men. It's in The Shape of Water. Uh, Charlton Heston drives around, you know, a, a post apocalyptic in the Omega Man, <laughs> playing at least on the home video version of the movie. That's what we hear, and. So so yes, that, that music, it seems like a year doesn't go by that someone doesn't use a summer place to sort of denote a sort of Muzak-ish, you know, version of the 50s. But it, it's also a testament to the fact that, that a man who was born in 1888 and knew Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss <laughs> and, and yet who could write King Kong and White Heat, you know, could transform himself into the minds of these, these kids and write this music from inside their characters. So I think Max really earns the title of being one of the great musical dramatists of all time. All right, so let's let's talk top Steiner scores. Uh, <laughs> you know, as if this is the little sidebar next to the article. What would you? What do you think are the the major ones that one should know and pay some attention to as you're watching the movie? Um, well, of course, fa most important or, or 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 greatest really are personal preference. But I would have to say, I think King Kong is probably the single most influential film score of the sound era, because it really takes a movie with great great potential that is a wonderful film, but really cements it all together and gives it a a, a pathos and grandeur and a sense of pace and excitement that that the music was needed to provide just as bernard herman had to provide the score for psycho to make that the perfect film that it was so i would say king kong is is number one on the list of important i'd say casablanca is a great score in showing how max could take a theme not written by him uh, a song from a failed broadway show the song being of course as time goes by and using that as a, a light motif into one of the most moving and beautiful romantic scores ever written um uh, Gone with the Wind, of course, in his lifetime was the most famous score that he'd written, and the Terra theme certainly is famous. And you know, it's a movie that's certainly being talked a lot about these days. And I will just say that for Max, it wasn't a movie about the Civil War. It wasn't a movie about politics. It was about a, a character who came from a family dynasty, lost it all, fought to get it back, and lost a great deal personally to to achieve that. And that's exactly what Max Steiner's own story was. He came from this this 
wealthy, successful, famous family that really lost everything. He spent his life fighting not only to financially climb back, but really restore the name of Steiner to to the name of of famous uh, musical artists. He succeeded, but in a way that I will leave for readers to discover, it came at, at great and tragic personal cost. So I think Max approached Gone with the Wind from that very internal human story. Uh, and so that's certainly and, – and in terms of, of length and the number of themes written and how they intersect, uh, it's, a, it's really his most operatic score. And then there are wonderful scores that people aren't as familiar with. Uh, I would say Johnny Belinda is at the top of that list for me. It's a it's a movie that you think, oh, Jane Wyman plays a character who's deaf and mute, and of course she wins the Oscar. It sounds like the kind of role they'd give an Oscar to. It's really a tremendously moving film and has some very, very dark scenes in it and also some really touching scenes. And Max considered that one of his best scores, and he, he wasn't wrong. And when I was going through the papers, the production papers uh, on, on that title, I, there were many thank you or, or co- uh, congratulations letters that were sent to its producer, Jerry Wald. And one of them was from Billy Wilder. And I can't remember, recall the exact wording, but I think that it says, what an incredibly moving film, what a wonderful movie moving film you know that from the most cynical of right, Hollywood yeah, filmmakers yeah. and uh, and it's funny because I think Max and Billy Wilder had some similarities they were both from Austria they both came to America taught themselves English had a great sense of language had a great sense of humor and Max could seem cynical and he and he was appropriately cynical let's say about Hollywood and how people could be treated but he also never really lost that that Viennese heart that he had and the warmth and looking for the best in people and I think that's a quality that you'll find in a lot of Steiner's music is a real love for, for people. And you certainly find that in the Betty Davis movies when he is taking her side as a character, if you will. And you hear that in Johnny Belinda. So I think those kinds of scores reflect uh, uh, something very close to who Max was. All right. So one thing I noticed I thought was really fun about the book, and must you must have thought of it as a great <laughs> gift, was that in telling the story of music and writing it down without the aid of the actual music, Steiner scribbled notes all over his scores. So he's giving you running commentary on his music all the way through the book, which I'm sure you found that. I was just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> no biographer will ever be luckier than I was because – and I have to thank a gentleman named named James Dark because it was Jim Dark, a good friend, who saved Max's papers, his correspondence, his music scores, and the recordings that Max kept of the recording sessions, where you'll often hear him speaking to the orchestra. But yes, the the actual music scores are practically an autobiography, and there's nothing like them that I've ever seen with any other composer. Uh, Max is writing on very simple music sheet, just the kind that you'd buy at a music store with a treble clef and a bass clef. He's writing the dialogue that's happening in the movie at that moment. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. Here's looking at you, kid. He'll write what he wants the emotional effect to be. And he will, he, and in the finale of King Kong, he's writing kind of every moment that's happening on the Empire State Building. You know, Kong is hit. Kong reaches for Anne for the last time, but does not succeed. And and you almost feel like he's, a, he's an audience member watching the finished film with the music in tears with a fast heartbeat. And you also <laughs> feel at the same time that he is Kong and he's inside it. And he'll write it in these giant caps and under underlined, uh, 
words. And so he is – you can feel the music pouring out of him, and he's all, he'll also say, Hugo, what I want this to feel like is – or Bernard, whoever the orchestrator was, and he'll describe what the musical effect was. That's great enough, but then – then for as long as he was a, a staff composer at Warner Brothers, in the margins of the music, he's writing what's going on in his personal life, his sex life, <laughs> uh, the, the politics at Warner Brothers, you know, the fights that are going on with people. And it's like a diary. And it's amazing enough that Steiner could write these scores, and he wrote them in – so it's two weeks sometimes for a feature film, and he's jotting down in shorthand what instruments he wants to play. So he's sort of doing a, a first pass orchestration on uh, a pass on, while he's writing the score. But he's writing everything from uh, things that happen during the day to dirty jokes and all of that. And he's doing it partly because if he, not only does he have to stay awake for seven days, but his orchestrator or orchestrators are also staying awake for seven days because the movie has a set release date. So I think Max puts in all these bad jokes and things and and, and writes about himself just to keep everybody alert and awake and laughing. And I, I've known contemporary composers who told me they, they did the same thing. And uh, so it's fascinating that the scores are almost, they have a very, you are there, you're in the room <laughs> as King Kong is being written, as Top Hat is being scored, you know, as, as Casablanca is being finished. And, and you also sense the great race against time. And sometimes it will say, I think the, the most dangerous game, one of the first big scores he wrote says something like, Bernard, his, his orchestrator was Bernard Cowan. Bernard, help me. It's 6 a.m. and the orchestra is is to start at 10 a.m. You know, I mean, he is racing against time to finish these cues. They were probably putting the the parts for the musicians on their music stands you know, moments after <laughs> the uh, orchestrators had finished copying it from Max's scores. So, yeah, there was a great sense of tempo and urgency throughout uh, Steiner's life, and I think he loved it. I think he, he, was, he was energized by it and inspired by it and in my book I certainly wanted to convey that sense of excitement and momentum and have it not be a dry academic read but have it be a, a very exciting book and, and entertaining book to read. For Stephen C. Smith's Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer, from Oxford University Press, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Jeffrey Mantor, Rena Keene, and Stephen C. Smith. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Good in a mink coat, honey. Mm-hmm. You look good in a shower curtain. <laughs> <laughs>